Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emma Gunnar Wardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. My guest on this episode of the podcast is author Emily Horton. Now, a little while ago, I read Emily's debut novel before I saw you and I was instantly gripped. It's such a good and easy read, genuinely a really wonderful uh, companion if you are looking for an entertaining and enlightening book. But while the book navigates the tricky question of can you fall in love with someone you've never seen... It was actually the themes that Emily explores in the book that really caught my eye, that really made me sit up and think, hmm, this is actually incredibly interesting and thought-provoking. And as I began to find out more about Emily herself, I was convinced she would be a great guest who'd be able to share some really interesting insights with you, my most excellent listeners, on the subject of love, relationships, but also people-pleasing, self-discovery, understanding who you are and what you stand for, and so much more. And listeners... I was right. She is such a great guest. I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation. Emily is such a generous and open guest and we really go there in this episode talking about recovering from people pleasing or as I've heard it called many times the disease to please shifting your mindset from accepting okay to aiming for and striving for great how to avoid hitting rock bottom but why sometimes hitting those depths can be a gift and the value in therapy I think one of the things that really stood out for me in Emily's book and which she mentions in the podcast is is this idea of being scared that being yourself being exactly who you are warts and all is the thing that will turn people off or make them reject you So you get to a place where in order to avoid rejection, in order to avoid people turning their back on you, you're not actually being your authentic self or true to who you are. And we unpick this and a whole lot more during the conversation. Now, listeners, as I'm sure you can appreciate, given that we're in lockdown, not long now, this episode was recorded via the internet and we had a connection snafu about halfway through. It's about a 10 second little clip 
And I actually left it in because it sounded more disjointed to cut it out. It was a bit more jarring. So I just left it in. Just know that for 10 seconds, we were both going, are you there? Oh, you frozen. Are you there? What's happening? Oh, I think my internet's gone. And then it all, and then it's all fine for the rest of the show. <laughs> anyway, I really enjoyed this conversation with Emily and I really appreciated how open and honest she was during our conversation. So I hope you find it as interesting, as comforting and as enlightening as I did. The links to Emily, her social media and her books will be in the show notes, but please do join me in welcoming Emily Horton onto the Emma Gunn Show. Emily Horton, welcome to the Emma Gunn Show. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure, actually. You've written a really lovely book called Before I Saw You, which um, really caught my attention because I found it really hopeful. Yeah. (laughs) But I also felt that it acknowledged a truism, which is that sometimes you have to go through the tough stuff yes (laughs) yeah and I think sometimes those moments unfortunately sometimes it takes that to realize um, a lot of things not just about yourself but maybe what's happening around you so I'm glad that came through when you when you read it very much so so the the scene starts with uh Alfie lying in a hospital bed with the imminent arrival of the patient who's going to be in the bed next to him who we know doesn't want to be seen doesn't really want to talk to Mm -hmm. anyone not doesn't really want to hasn't spoken to anyone since they were admitted and I must admit within a couple of pages I felt you just painted the scene so beautifully like I was in the ward with them but I wondered if we could take a step out of the book first because in my conversations with authors who write fiction there's this sort of growing feeling about things that they're seeing or conversations that they're hearing that formulate and crystallize into an idea. And I wondered what it was that made you actually write the, come up with the idea or what it was that you felt that you had to say about the world that we're living in. Yeah. And it's really interesting because when I think back to the book and how it began, it, it actually came to me and it sounds slightly strange when I say this aloud but um a few years ago but way before I even thought about writing the book um this image of these two people at night kind of hidden behind something but kind of bearing their souls and it and it really probably at the time was very reflective of the journey I was going on um I was in therapy um I was I was working in an industry that was very focused kind of I worked part-time in the fitness industry and and obviously that's very focused on aesthetics Um, and I think it was just this idea of being seen and what that really meant And, and that was a huge and has been and continues to be a huge part of my journey with mental health and self acceptance etc so that was what came through and I wrote it down on my phone and kind of didn't touch it for a few years. And then it, and then I rediscovered the idea and then everything started to happen. So yeah, it was obviously something there for a while. Um, and then it just had to happen in a certain, a certain way at a certain time, I think. It's interesting you say about working in the fitness industry and it's about aesthetics and what have you, because I think I've worked in magazines journalism beauty industry for a very long time and it's a really wonderful place to be but that's not to say that every now and again you don't look around and think this is all a bit of a nonsense right 
<laughs> when you look yeah. at a lot of the component parts that contribute to to it, is that what happened with you? I think I had a really, I'm going to say, interesting relationship with the industry. I mean, the reason I got into teaching was because of how much it helped me mm -hmm. um, find a space where I could really kind of let go of a lot of, of things emotionally. And it was a, a super powerful um, experience for me. And I wanted to give that back to people. And the company that I worked for was extremely supportive in that. And that was their whole ethos. Um, however, I think, like you were saying, you can't ignore the fact that you are being put forward and people are looking at your body because you are essentially still a, a figure of, of physical fitness. And mm -hmm. it was difficult um, at times. And I think the idea of, for me, I wanted people to feel inspired and, and motivated to be the best version of themselves rather than wanting to be a version of me and or other instructors and I think sometimes that's a very blurry line because you are you're the face you are the the upfront leader of the brand the class um and I see I kind of have friends in the industry and I spent a lot of time there and you do see it you know this pressure to look a certain way even though strength and fitness doesn't correlate to necessarily what you look like on the outside so personally it was a real conflicting thing based on some of my history with disordered eating and kind of self um criticism so it was an interesting place to be but I mean I loved it and the teaching element was just unbelievable well I'm thinking about it just the way you describe it there it must be odd to be in front of a class of people and maybe after a session someone says oh, I just wish I looked like you or you're put up on a pedestal. You might even be up on a stage with, I don't know, yeah. some strobe lighting on you. But <laughs> it must be quite difficult for some, for people to project onto you how perfect or how how you're where they're trying to get to when you don't feel like you're a destination, you feel like you're still a work in progress. Definitely. And I think what was really important for me was I was surrounded by examples and instructors who were extremely open and very honest you know they turned up if they'd had a bad day they weren't just going to paint their face and be really excited they were going to be really honest and again I think it's important to find those people that you can look to as examples of how you want to show up not necessarily be the same as but say okay there are people that are doing it differently and I was really fortunate to be surrounded by by quite a few of those individuals but yeah I did feel kind of and and I know because I was on the other side of it I was a, a, a person that went to classes and looked up at these instructors and then as soon as you have that realization that they're just human beings and they may have had a really awful you know night the night before and they've had to come at 6am and teach this class it, it does it is a different way of looking at it you know um and I think sometimes in that industry we we we're getting better at it but I think sometimes we lose that understanding that we aren't all robots that are just on all the time 
Yeah, I think there's definitely that idea, isn't there, that if you're into fitness, then you are into fitness and it's your it's your operating system. You wake up and you think, right, lunges, right, smoothie. <laughs> yeah. And there is something there is something robotic. But what I found quite interesting about that as well is I wondered if particularly the character of Alice, who obviously doesn't speak to anyone for a while, doesn't want to be seen. Was there a part of you that was wondering if the world would treat you the same way if you look different? Well, do you think that a lot of how you were accepted got by was because you're a really attractive, fit woman? Um, yes. Well, uh, even you saying that makes me be like... Oh, I know, I'm don't... sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to. As soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, oops. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, it's all a work in progress. Um, yes, I, I, I very much have been aware of how I look from an extremely young age um and whether that's the general environment and culture which I I do believe it is Mm. but you know I I was in a I went to an all-girls school extremely um high pressure academics yeah um my one of my best friends um had an extremely severe eating disorder so even from kind of 14 I was already thinking well you know I'm not the fit and I was always brought up to you know you eat so much and you're still very small you know that conversation around food is such an important you know dialogue in my family you know that's the way we show love is is food so even then that that mindset was happening um and then suddenly when you're not the smallest person out your friendship group it's like oh should I be doing that and you know even though you know you shouldn't it's what you're surrounded by so I think with Alice, a lot of it was she was very controlled and she likes things exactly as she wants them to be. And this was something she had no control over. And when you're used to being able to control a room and be very confident, you probably don't realise or your whole world changes when something like that's taken away. Um, And I think for me, it was more of that. How does someone that is so guarded and and seemingly in control of their life deal with something that they are completely, you know, they have no say or control in? So I definitely think the visual aspect was key because her injuries, you cannot hide from them. You Mm -hmm. know, with Alfie, um, you can get a prosthetic. and And I know that's it's not the same as as having his leg but there are ways whereas with Alice's injuries they are very difficult to hide um which is why she then forces herself into hiding you know uh so yeah I think there was a lot of that in there um and I and I do think no matter what we say we are programmed to judge people on how they look even if it's just for a second Mm. um so we can't escape that uh and I think that played into it for sure and it's interesting what you say there about the Alice can't hide from her injuries. Alfie uh, can't hide from his either. It Again, I'm sort of uh, assuming now that it's essentially this idea of not running away from your problems. If, if they're on you or they affect you physically in the way that they do the characters, it's kind of a metaphor, isn't it, for stop burying it down and face it. And you talk about disordered eating and I can talk about and listeners will know my relationship with binge eating and 
discovering a couple of years ago that I was definitely showing signs of having binge eating disorder. And that's something that you, you can't put it to bed for a while, but you realize how well and skillfully one can, what I certainly did in that scenario, just completely bury it. And just yeah, one day you do have to unpack it and face it if you want to move forward. Definitely. And especially when you look at Alfie, his character, and, and actually both of them, but in very different ways. So ev- both characters have their defense mechanisms to keep people out because of, of the fact that actually when you let people in, you almost have to kind of face things maybe you don't want to. Alice is very obvious in her kind of independence, guarded defense. Alfie's on the other hand is, is something that I really relate to. And I think actually is a really difficult one that a lot of people are not sure what to do with when someone on the outside appears so happy and giving and loving and, um, you know, supportive of everyone else around them. How can they suddenly then be the sad one? And how can they suddenly ask for help when everyone's relying on you to be the person that lifts people up? Um, And I think it, it definitely speaks to these roles that we give ourselves in society. Um, and, and something I definitely have struggled with, you know, but definitely what you're saying around, and I've always had this strange thing that when I was really struggling with my mental health, I kind of, and a lot of my my issues came through physically. So I'd always feel very unwell. And I think subconsciously it was this idea that if I'm physically ill, people understand it. Whereas if I, if it's just my internal world, how can anyone understand that? And so I do think a lot of the fact that the injuries are are so severe and physical really is a catalyst that makes them face into, they can't hide anymore. Um, and I, and I think, you know, it, it's that strange line that we tread in society around, you know, why do we accept physical illness as something serious, but sometimes not mental health just because we can't see it, feel it, touch it, look at it, you know? And interestingly as well, it'd be wrong in a way not to bring up the fact that we've had a whole conversation this week in the news, the week of the Megan Oprah interview, yep. where somebody has said, I had suicidal thoughts. And because you can't see them and because you can't verify them, they are questioned in a way that you couldn't yep. question a broken leg. Yeah, definitely. And it is really difficult because you will never feel you will never, even if you can relate, you will never understand how it feels to be in someone's body, in someone's head at that point. And that's where I think as a society, it's just about putting yourself aside for a moment and really hearing what the other person has to say. And even if it's just allowing them to speak it, sometimes that's all they need. But I think as well, something I, I learned and I really struggled with, I remember I was on a retreat and one of the rules was if people get upset, don't comfort them. And I, me, as someone that's like, I'm here, I'm ready, I'm gonna, I'll hug you. I was like holding myself back. But what they were saying was we don't always have to fix people. You know, people sometimes just need to speak. And I think as human beings, we're, we're always trying to find the solution. And sometimes that makes us judge what is being said, because if we can't find a solution, we're like, oh, well, I don't know what to do. Maybe that's not real or you know, we want to quantify it. And sometimes that's not possible, especially with mental health. Um, So yeah, I think it is, it it was a really powerful conversation and seeing the reactions of people has been very interesting. Very interesting. Um, (laughs) Yeah. 
but also what you just said there reminded me about I grew up in a household where if I cried it would be don't cry don't cry and so what you're saying about that retreat is actually maybe sometimes you just need to cry it out it's so hard seeing somebody you love upset and you don't want them to cry but they might need they might need to feel that emotion they might need to get to the other side of the tears to start to process it because otherwise it just kind of I guess can just be buried or unspoken and that's when it festers so for you in terms of um if you don't mind going here talking about your mental health it sounds Mm -hmm. as though it sounds as though a lot of it might have started at school I think actually when I've looked back and I and I have gone through a journey with kind of this in terms of I actually think from a very young age, I struggled. I was a very anxious child. I mean, I couldn't really like, I'd have panic attacks if sometimes, you know, my mum left the room and I didn't know where she was. And it was a very, you know, for me, I even remember those feelings of sheer terror, just being like, I feel, where where am I? I'm lost. You know, where is my support system you know so I think from a very early age I had a very anxious side to me and I think it just manifested and manifested I was very sick all the time as a child nothing was really ever wrong but I felt physically unwell and and I think just to your point there about if we don't let it out how does it manifest and I do think a lot of it does and there's there's a lot of research and evidence around how it impacts us in our bodies in our in our tissues in our cell you know because that's got to go somewhere um but I think the real turning point for me was um I went through a really terrible breakup and slash relationship at university and I think that was the real tipping point to be like okay this is not how I should be feeling or how I want to be feeling um and that's when it officially got discussed and diagnosed uh but as you say I think this anxiety and and sadness and I think a lot of mine came from this need to be loved and and validated has been from a very young age not helped by certain environments maybe such as school um etc etc so yeah it's been a long journey, I would say. Yeah, and I hear um, some symmetry and familiar. There's definitely some similarities in what you're saying and what I've also discussed at length on this podcast previously about my own mental health. But one of the things that you touched on there, which I still really struggle with, is looking outwardly for validation and acceptance. And I can catch it now, but it definitely. When I look back, I think I spent ten years in that job just wanting my boss to tell me I was doing it well (laughs) you know and because (laughs) that wasn't forthcoming I just spent the entire time thinking I'm doing so badly and made it didn't need to be stressful but I made it that way um how have you if you could sort of share the the path that you've been on in a way that might be helpful for someone listening how have you been able to be your own best cheerleader with difficulty no um I, <laughs> I mean again I was this person that thought right I'm gonna I'm gonna fix this I'm gonna do all these things and then I'm just gonna love myself and I'm not gonna need anyone else to tell me obviously it didn't happen quite like that and I think one of the biggest things I've learned is that it is a process and I like to think that it took me what well I'm 29 it's taken me 29 years 
or you know to be this way it's going to take some time to unpack and just be Mm. patient with that you know I think a lot of especially me is like well now I'm going to do this I want it to be done straight away so then I can then move on to the next thing um so patience I'd say is my biggest kind of lesson learned I think again just trying things that make you feel good and one of the biggest things I've learned is and I don't know whether you resonate with this from what we what we've said but as someone that's looking for love acceptance validation a lot of the time I would ignore what I want Mm. and would would be like okay but what do you want me to do okay what what do you want me to be and I think for me the process of kind of coming back to what I want and how I feel and what's going to make me feel good in those moments has been really important because without that you don't really have a strong foundation for boundaries and what's a no for you what's a yes for you and from that then comes so much more in terms of how it kind of affects other areas of of has my life so I would say talking about things for me you know I don't think therapy is for everyone but for me it was it was a savior Mm. um and just trying to get out of your head I think we praise the brain and the mind so much and it is the most amazing thing but coming back to your body coming back to your breath whether that's running yoga meditating having a bath like whatever it is that gets you out of that headspace and back to you and feeling in your body and yourself I would try and do as regularly as as possible within the bounds of of being healthy obviously over exercising is oh well the ball game but you know just finding those small things totally and I think as well what you say about people pleasing and essentially checking in making sure you're or not making sure but living almost to please others it can be something that you don't realize you're doing necessarily because you get a quick hit from it it's like a sugar fix but yeah um for, for me personally I don't know about you I had to do a lot of discovery because I couldn't mm-hmm. transition from people pleasing to then knowing what I wanted because I didn't have a clue and I was in my 30s yeah. and I was like, I don't know what makes me happy. I don't know what yes. I want because I've never asked myself. And it's that moment. I was, I kind of had this existential crisis. I was like, what am, who am I? Like, I don't even know. I've spent, <laughs> I'm, everyone's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I actually don't know, but I know I'm meant to know. So then starts this whole spiral of like, you don't even know who you are, Emily. Like what's going on? So it is, it can be quite a scary realisation. But then I think it's about, A, getting that support network of those people who make you feel supported and listened and heard. And then just finding the little things to be like, okay, even if it's that I know that, I know I talk about having a bath a lot, but it is my sanctuary. (laughs) But even if it's knowing that being in the bath by myself with candles, whatever, makes me feel good. That's one thing I now know about myself. And it's about really making it manageable because if you think about it in that full spectrum, it is terrifying. And I, you know, and everyone's on a process and what you want changes and it's never exactly the same. So small steps, I would say. Um, And yeah, the the process of unpacking things, you know, when I went into therapy, I was like, right, we're going to talk about three things and then I'm going to be fixed, you know. (laughs) My parents' divorce, my breakup, 
and my eating. And then we're going to be done three years later. I was like, oh, hmm, okay. So I think it's being open to, like you say, discovering and exploring what has had internet's giving me some trouble at the moment I think that (laughs) okay (laughs) um I you're back you're back um it's really interesting what you say um I only discovered this a couple of weeks ago when I was speaking to the clinical lead psychotherapist actually for beat which is the uh, eating disorder charity yeah support charity and it was how the paper or the data shows that more people-pleasing personality type the people-pleasing personality type is more likely to be affected by an eating disorder particularly binge eating disorder yeah and one of my teachers um she has yeah she's unbelievable and she does a lot of um she really specializes in women's health um so say she's a yoga teacher is just doesn't capture of what she does but she really taught me a lot about and I hadn't really thought about it maybe because I was living it but this this good girl role so what the what are the things we deny ourselves or what are the things we restrict or don't allow ourselves to do because we want to play this role of of being a good girl which as society we are taught is the way to be growing up you know don't rock the boat, do as you say, X, Y, Z. And then I think comes this, when you are allowed as an adult or or when you start to have freedom, when you can make those choices, it often does lead to excess in certain areas. For me, I, I couldn't, I had an interesting relationship with alcohol. If I was going out, I was going out and I would drink to excess because I wanted to be that fun, free person. Yeah. And and that wasn't healthy, but because I could, and it was getting that, you know, reaction and, and that, you know, oh God, wasn't that hilarious when I did those awful things and, you know, put myself at risk. You know, you then find those, like you're saying, those hits, those sugar hits um, that then you hold on to. And, and then that can manifest in so many different and quite detrimental ways, I think. It's funny. I Have you found in lockdown, because you mentioned alcohol and I haven't really had any alcohol in lockdown Mm. and actually it's made me think about how I was with alcohol pre-lockdown and when I think of I worked in a job where it was actually if you had the flu and you had a day off that was less uh (laughs) you'd be given an easier time if you had a hangover (laughs) like good on you girl and I I have had a chance to sort of examine my relationship with alcohol and think yeah exactly the same thing I'm not very good at relaxing or chilling out so if I was going out I'd be like let's go out (laughs) I mean yeah just because I can drink a whole bottle of amaretto Emily doesn't mean that you should those kind of you know when at uni that was a great moment um I actually then took it to the extreme so I then went on this journey and I when I started working in the fitness industry I then became very extreme in the opposite sense so I stopped drinking completely I was obviously exercising a lot um under the guise of being this new, really healthy, in-tune person. And it was only recently that I realised, well, that again 
is extremely restrictive and I'm and I'm I'd feel bad if I had one drink even if I wanted to and nothing bad happened because I'd said I was this person that didn't drink and I was healthy and etc so it's then taken me a process of again doing what I want to do and just really listening to how I how I want to be or show up if I want to have a drink that's fine the world isn't going to end and if I don't again that's fine so sometimes I think we have to go to these extreme places to then be able to come back to a more balanced place um but yeah I think again I still get comments from my friends if I have a drink a certain group of friends if I have a drink they're like oh yeah drunk Emily's coming back and I'm like (laughs) oh my god hey what was I doing before but again, this feeling that you're only fun yeah. if you're absolutely, you know, downing shots at the bar or whatever. So I think that is hard to stand in your truth when that's all around you, especially in a work environment as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, again, a process of just finding what makes you feel good and being really confident in that. And actually, in a way, being as Mandy Saligari says, being healthy, selfish about it saying putting your barriers uh, your boundaries in place as you mentioned earlier yes and it's hard you know when people you care about or people you want approval from especially in a work environment are telling you oh have a drink you know it's no fun when you're not having a drink or we loved it when you were when you always got you know you were so much fun it's really difficult to then go I know myself enough to stand firm in what I'm doing Mm. and again it's about not berating yourself if you then go okay why why not I'll drink and I've had that you know I've been to weddings where I've got I've been like oh okay yeah it's fine and the next day I just remember why I don't do that anymore Mm. so it's trying to you know it's trying to take each moment as a lesson and not as a good and bad you did wrong type Mm. of approach which I'm very much guilty of you know if I had one drink I'm like oh I've ruined everything I'm a terrible person I'm not healthy anymore and it's like that is not the case I'm constantly laughing because I'm thinking about the last time I went to a wedding and (laughs) (laughs) I I got under a table and demanded someone brought me a cheese plate (laughs) (laughs) this is many this is many years ago. Um, but actually something, and I guess it's actually the sort of fitness industry side of it that's made this really crystallize in my mind. But I feel like it also applies to anyone. And I definitely feel like it's applied to me before in the sense of I used to live my life and make decisions based on how I thought it looked rather than how it felt, how it looked to definitely. other people. Definitely. Um, my, you know, the reason I I wanted to study drama and I wanted to go into that world of performing and entertainment. And, and I studied biology at, at university, which I enjoyed and, and I found extremely interesting, but I did it because it was more of an acceptable degree and I could do drama on the side. Did I do drama on the side? Obviously not. I, I then went down this path and thought, well, that's where I'm at, you know? Um, and I do think with time, that changes a bit more you know as I've gotten older um being less afraid to do things that aren't necessarily on that strict career path you know I remember 
when I went into corporate world, I was like, I'm going to be a director by the time I'm 30. And if I'm not, then I'm a complete failure. <laughs> um, and all my decisions were based on getting to that point. Uh, and then, you know, I in last February, I left that world completely to write full time. And even then, when I knew it was what I wanted to do, there were moments of doubt being like, oh, should you just stay for the security? Because that's what you should do. And you can do it on the side. And it's it's you'll probably always have that voice. But it's learning to make it a little quieter and allow the other truer kind of voice to kind of speak over it. Because actually, you say that one of the things in your uh, bio is that you've dreamt of being an author ever since you could hold a pen. And you said you're 29. And you have gone and taken many different routes. And do you, (laughs) which is not, that didn't mean that wasn't shame. No, no, I know. (laughs) I know. It was me laughing at myself. (laughs) But I can almost understand the, um, I want to do this, but I'm too scared to lean into that. So I'm going to do the other things and I wonder whether it was actually quite in your mind quite a monumental decision even though it was probably one of the easiest decisions you made to actually become a full-time writer definitely and I and I don't think I don't think I could have made that decision on my own at this point I still needed to seek you know my dad's an accountant am I going to be okay? Like break it down for me. You know, I still had to speak to people in my life to go, this one thing I'm doing, I'm pretty 90% sure I'm going to do it, but I'm just checking in with you to check if you think this is okay. And that's fine. You know, I think we do lean on um, our support network to, to almost mirror or it's almost like a playback of actually, I'm pretty sure I'm going to do this, but I just want you to, play it back to me yeah (laughs) yeah you just stamp that great um so yeah and I do I was talking about this the other day sometimes I look back and think if only I'd done this sooner Mm. but then I think would I have been able to write a book like this if I hadn't have experienced everything I've experienced and the only way I am who I am today is because of everything I've experienced and all the people I've met you know that corporate world I could write 700 books about some of those characters there, you know, it's like that for me is what I get my inspiration from. And so maybe if I had got into it sooner, it wouldn't have worked out like this. And that's the narrative in my head that I, I choose to believe. Um, and that makes everything feel a lot easier because I can't regret what's happened before because I wouldn't be me writing that book if I hadn't had of all of that. So yeah, that's why I was laughing when you said it. it's kind of been a bit of a because I was like yeah and I and actually I don't think maybe the book would have been what it is without all of that you know mm, interesting and tell me as well because uh, you talk as well obviously this is about making connections with people being vulnerable how did dating and your dating life before the book inform how that relationship pans out and you've spoken about a breakup <laughs> and obviously you which is a brilliant thing is you obviously really absorb and compute your experiences but not just in a way where you then feel them but in a way where you're then able to use them in something like the book and maybe hold a mirror up to other people or let them see a perspective that maybe they wouldn't otherwise see 
Yeah, I think dating has always been an interesting one for me. Um, and I did a, an article about it, and I and I remember saying to my friend, like, I'm being honest here. Do you think I should be this honest? And she was like, <laughs> Yeah, go on. I actually, and it was a real moment in therapy. I remember being like, Oh my god, I went through this phase of dating people at work. I know, I know. I mean, you know, everyone's an expression, do it, but I did it. <laughs> oh, oh. I just chose to like blank that one out a number of times. <laughs> um, all my friends' brothers. And oh. and it was this, yeah. And it was this really hilarious joke that everyone was like, oh, Emily, you're going to date another one of my brothers. And what I realized was because it was, I, I felt safer. If I dated someone that knew me or had a connection to me, in my mind, they couldn't be that horrible to me because they would, have to deal with either their sibling or we'd have to see each other in the work environment and for me it was a real way to be safe in in a world or in a experience when you're dating someone that is so vulnerable and so unpredictable and so there was that real light bulb moment when I was like oh god um that's why you know uh and I and I do think it's very difficult. I mean, the pandemic has thrown up even more challenges around meeting people and, you know, being able to experience a very limited um, version of someone because we are so confined to doing certain things. I think I very much believed I was extremely open and, and I am very giving and, and I'm very open to a point, mm. but I still think, in a lot of my relationships I am so afraid that they will leave or that I'm, I'm not good enough that I just want that reassurance and or I'm kind of like well I'll just be who you want me to be because then obviously you're going to stay and I, and I it's come up in various ways through different dating scenarios and relationships um, and it got to a point where I was like you know what I just need to pause and that's very much where I've been I came out of a relationship in November 2000 yeah last year and at the moment I'm like I can't even think about you know like this time I just need to really focus on what I want and where I'm going and what I'm doing because it's hard I think when you bring two people into a dynamic it is, it's a lot to process and I want a relationship. You know, the book I think is very much a description of the relationship I would like for myself. Yeah. You know, being able to be seen and vulnerable and still have someone stick around is probably really at the heart of it why I wrote that book because it was the love story that kind of I had wanted throughout my life. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm loving this I feel like I'm really in like a therapeutic mindset I I really appreciate you being so open because I think it's true I think we all have an idea of what we a what we think a relationship will look like but also what we think a relationship will feel like and often our actions mismatch uh, what don't aren't in line with us actually achieving either of those goals when we go out dating oh yeah oh yeah and you know again I was talking about this the other day with with my friend there is this idea that 
that because I've spoken to someone a lot, especially on the on online dating, you get into a rapport, you speak to someone. I'm very chatty. Like I love, I mean, I, I could voice note all day long, <laughs> but that is only one side of someone. And, and I think sometimes I forget that. And I'm like, well, this is that person. And actually you have to experience so many different things with that person to really understand all of them. You know, how do they show up when things get hard? Mm. How do they show up when you're not smiley and happy all the time? You know, I've had many examples where as soon as I've set a boundary, that person has been like, oh, oh no, I'm not this. I'm not into this. And it's like, okay, well, if that's just one, you know, one time me saying no, what's it going to be like further down the line? And again, it's, people present a side that they want to present to you and that isn't the whole person in a good and a bad way you know like we are all a myriad of of things and it's about finding out as much of, of about that as you can um, and sometimes I, I kind of rush in without kind of checking and being like you know this is this is a version of this person just give it time and see before you kind of give your whole self over you know a hundred percent I remember the first ever therapy session I had I um was telling the therapist about everything that was going on and she said well do you know what I'm hearing I'm hearing that you put people on a pedestal and then you work really really hard to make them happy and then you reach boiling point and then you stop making them really really happy but it happens immediately and so they just go well this isn't what I signed up for because it's such an abrupt shift. It's like you put the brakes on so hard that they have no option but to have a big reaction because it's a big change. It might not feel like a big change for you because it might have been stewing for ages. But for them, yeah. it's a sudden, oh, that that's broken now. I don't need that. And you see rejection, but you've been you've contributed to this. And I thought that was really interesting. It was basically, she was saying, you present yourself as one item, somebody buys it, takes it off the shelf, takes takes it home and lives with it. And then suddenly realizes, hang on, this isn't what I paid for. This isn't the description that, this isn't what I thought I was going to be getting. I'm going to leave yeah. a one star review. <laughs> <laughs> for the world to see, yeah. Uh, but then on the flip side, I, I then became, I remember this feeling very scared that someone would think that I'd misled them because I'm a very you know I, I when you're that giving person or, or you're quite humorous or you're, you're like this energy I'd always feel like oh they're going to find out soon that I'm not like this 100% of the time and then they're going to go so then I would almost overshare everything and be like well this is everything about me do you want it and they'd be like whoa <laughs> okay you know we've, we've just had two coffees and now I know all about your therapy session on Wednesday. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. And again, it's that balance. You know, I remember someone being like, you don't have to tell everyone everything all at once. It's a process. Um, and I think the, the biggest thing is something I find really difficult is communicating that. You know, like you were saying about like when you're stewing and keeping everything aside, to you, you've been on that whole journey. To them, mm. they're like, whoa, what's going on? Um, and it's difficult Um especially when you hold yourself very to account, you know, you, you hold yourself to a very high standard and it's hard. I mean, relationships, I remember my therapist being like, relationships are the hardest thing in the world. You know, it's hard enough to be one person, but when you bring two people into it, like I me, mean, oh my God, especially when you get older, everyone's got their own baggage, their own stuff. So I think I'm just learning that it, it's, it's patience. That's what I'm hoping. 
We've also, you've touched on as well, vulnerability and about being vulnerable. And there's a difference yeah. between being vulnerable and telling every telling someone everything about you, yeah. which, I, which I also, I hear you, I struggle with it too. <laughs> but I also think one of the, the things that I've really come to, to understand is so important. I'm not saying I can put it into practice all the time. I have to really check myself, but it's compassion, not just for other people, but for me sometimes. And just think... Mm that's why you're having a that's why you're feeling this way don't stop agonizing about the fact you feel this way and just accept it and now move like now make a decision definitely and and for me that comes in with that patience and kindness to yourself and and going again you've played this role or you've you've exhibited these behaviors because of everything that's probably happened to you before and, it, and it's not going to be a switch overnight. So A, awareness is key, knowing why you do what you do or knowing that you're doing those things. Um, I mean, I the last relationship I was in, it was really hard. We were so different. And I think, you know, we were together two years ago, then we broke up and then we came back together. And I think I, I had this idea that, you know, it was going to be different. I was in a much better place. I'd left my work. We were both on different pages. I was going to be better in that relationship. We came back together and it was the same relationship because it wasn't about me being any different. It was about the two of us just not being compatible. And the love was there. The feelings were there. But that didn't make us a match. And that was one of the hardest but most amazing lessons that was, I think sometimes we think we're always the problem. And if we just changed, I mean, I definitely do. I'm like, well, if I was just a bit more relaxed or if I was just a bit less emotional, then we'd be fine. But that can only last so long. You know, you can only hold yourself back or keep yourself small or or, or act a particular way. When things get hard, you can't be pretending to be someone else. Like, And it was really painful, but actually it's it's been a real freedom for me to say you know sometimes it doesn't work out and it's not your fault you know yeah it's true actually most of the time you know there's no blame yeah and I think as well talking about being in those environments whether it's relationships or any kind of dynamic to be honest wherever you are whoever you're with if you're constantly changing yourself to try and get a different outcome sometimes you do have to acknowledge that maybe you just need to be out of that situation hundred percent and it, again it's not them because there were so many conversations where it was like but I just need you to be a bit more like this mm. and he would be like I, I am being like that and to him he was but to me again we were just on different pages and it wasn't any fault or blame you know just two people speak very different languages have very different communication styles are a product of very different backgrounds just sometimes don't align and won't align and and you can't really force that any other way but I think for human beings again as, as fixers definitely for me I was like well we can just keep finding a solution to this problem <laughs> we can keep doing this and it's like knowing when to leave it like you said knowing when to go okay we're going to compromise too much of ourselves which again comes back to being really truthful about what you need and what you want and, and what you need and what you want is absolutely okay even if someone can't give it to you it doesn't mean you should um ignore those needs and wants 
it's a little bit like I getting- say I have not done this myself <laughs> I say like I've nailed this I have not Quite no, like it's it. the same as being, I could tell you uh, how, what it looks like to fly an airplane, but I can't fly one. Like, I, but I can sort of tell you, yeah, you, <laughs> yeah. See, you put your seatbelt on, you <laughs> do that little thing with the buttons, you know, we all know how things can look Tannoy. in theory, but it's, pra- yeah, it's putting it into practice. Um, and the other thing I guess as well is with the book, it's very much about, and even just talking about therapy or making choices or learning and growing, you sort of, there's always this temptation to stay in the position of better the devil, you know, and I feel like what the book does really brilliantly and sort of uh, sneaks it in at the beginning is it forces the lead characters to, they don't have a chance to stay in the better the devil, you know, their reality has changed and they have to adapt. And I wonder if, um, that was that was deliberate of just saying you know sometimes if you want life to change you have to make decisions and life might actually feel a bit crap for a while you just have to keep going and hope that you're going to make the best of it or have faith in yourself that you'll make the best of it uh, yeah a hundred percent I think I know we touched on it at the very beginning often it takes you to feel the absolute lowest to then do something about it and and it was the case for me you know I would feel bad, do some things to make you feel good. And then I would just go back into the same pattern again. You know, I think we're very good as, as a society of living in that. It's okay. You know, I, I actually working with this amazing coach and she said, we're very good at accepting okay and fine. Why don't we strive for like great? You know, why do we feel like our lives should always be in that middle? Like, oh, I'm surviving. I'm fine. You know, some things are good. And I think sometimes it does take incidents or you to hit rock rock bottom to then go right I really need to do something now because I have no other options left like I cannot go on and it's a shame that it sometimes has to happen like that and I think obviously in the book it's an example of that I would like to think the more we talk about mental health and the more we have examples of people that are doing the work that show even through the pain, because it is work. It's not an easy thing. If it was easy, everyone would do it. But I can hand on heart say that my life has been changed beyond what I thought it could be. And and I still have a huge way to go from doing this process. Mm. Um, And I think it's remembering that. And again, having that support network to say you know I'm finding this hard this doesn't feel very I mean it's not going to feel good you're unpacking some of the most painful things that you've you've been through which is why we tend not to do it because it is it's a lot but the freedom on the other side and and the knowledge that you get about yourself I think it is life-changing and I just hope that people don't wait for that rock bottom moment um but sometimes that's what it takes to then go there has to be another way Mm. oh this has been so lovely and I've got a brilliant note on which to end just like the power of positivity of like really going there and confronting the difficult stuff Uh, it's been such a pleasure to chat and genuinely the book is like I said within a couple of pages I thought god I'm really already into this book like I'm in the ward (laughs) I could really it's one of those you write really well in the sense of you can sort of smell it you can taste it you can feel it you've got you're in the you're in the book before you've even had a chance to really you know, settle down. It's just, it's so well done. So I think it does share 
some really interesting it's very thought-provoking you sort of get to something and you think mm, yeah that's definitely going to make me think about that situation a little bit harder <laughs> <laughs> I mean completely unintentional no um <laughs> No, obviously completely uh, intentional. And I really appreciate you being so open about your own experiences. And I'm sure we could have spent an hour talking about you being a fitness instructor alone and everything that that meant. So um, hopefully there's scope for you to come on the podcast, come back on the podcast. But Emily, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It was so much fun. And it was, yeah, I wasn't expecting to go so deep at 10am. <laughs> but yeah, thank you. It was, it was, it was so lovely to talk to you. You're welcome anytime. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Emily and me. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com and I never get tired of getting your messages, so please don't be shy. If you would rather something a little bit more informal, then you can always DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I'm at Emma Guns, or you can speak to me and thousands of other listeners of this podcast by joining the Facebook forum. All you have to do is click the link, which can be found in the show notes, which is wherever you are streaming and downloading this episode. And guess what? We're going to welcome you in with open arms as soon as we see you. So join, get involved in the conversation, join that Facebook forum, send me an email, drop me a DM, whatever feels right, or just hit that subscribe button and I'll see you here same time next week. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.